Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continuing as they were and from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked fact, this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is the reading of the Lord. Thank, Thank you. you, Tom. Let's pray, family. Oh, King Jesus, we love you. We've come to worship your name, and we thank you. We thank you uh, that you have not left us like orphans, and that our hope in you is well-placed. Our hope in you is not in vain. Would you please speak to us? Speak to us today. Speak to our hearts and change our lives so that it might reflect who you are in your kingdom. Do this for your sake. Do this for your glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. Amen. Amen. So for days and days and weeks and weeks, we've been building up to Christmas Day. We focused our thoughts on what the scriptures had to say about the birth of Christ for days and weeks. We treasured all these thoughts in our heart. We proclaimed these promises and truths repeatedly through songs over and over. Yes, Christmas is the most wonderful time of year. And Christmas came, and it went. It's gone, right? And don't you feel just a little bit like the entire world has already forgotten that it ever happened? I do. It's like everything in the world is right back to where it was. The work schedules are going back. The school schedules are getting ready to go. Like, everything is going back to the way it was. What was the hoopla all about? It can kind of make us ask this question, what difference did Christmas make in the world? Or you want to ask a more honest question, it would be this, what difference did Christ's coming make in the world? Because that's kind of what's behind that. So the king came, great, where is he? And where's his kingdom we were all singing and talking about? When it's all said and done, everything appears to have stayed exactly the same. Are we fools for believing that Christ is king of the world? Are you and I fools for believing that he'll return to set everything right? I mean, maybe you secretly feel this way. 
See, when we don't see immediate changes in our world, especially after celebrating the coming of Christ, we can, kind of, we can experience a kind of a letdown. Do you know what I'm talking about? We can be tempted to adopt a cynical attitude toward the message of the king's return. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been saying that every year, every Christmas. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Are we just merry fools to celebrate his advent? Here's Peter's instructions to us. The wise don't just believe that Christ came. The wise believe that Christ will return. There will be a second advent. That's what the advent season's actually pointing us to. And we worship in light of that. This morning, first, we're going to look at some reasons to believe that the king will return and then, and then how to interpret the king's delay. So first, some reasons to believe the king will return. Let's go to the text here, verse 4. And they will say, where is this promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Here's the message of these, these scoffers that have come into Peter's church. They're saying this, look, the world's unchanging. Just look around you. Just look at empirical evidence. The world doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. Everything goes in this never-ending cycle of repeat. Spring, summer, winter, fall, repeat. Spring, summer, winter, fall, repeat. People are born. People work their jobs. People die. Repeat. History isn't going anywhere. The scoffers say not only that, but as far back in history as we can recollect, God has not entered into time and space to judge people, and that means that he will not enter into time and space. So this proves that the Lord doesn't really care what we do on the earth. You just live as you please. He doesn't see and he doesn't care. He's way over there, and we're way down here. And I know what you're probably thinking. Look, I'm a Christian. I would never see life like that. I'm not that cynical and jaded. I would never give ear to that kind of philosophy or thinking. But have you ever been in a place in your life where you thought this phrase? Maybe you didn't say it out loud because you're real spiritual. You would never say this out loud, but you thought it. Same stuff, different day. You ever been in a place in your life when you thought that? How you doing? Same stuff, just different day. What difference does what I do really make? in my family, in my job, in the world. I want to confess that I've thought that. I've said that and believed it when I said it. You know what that is? That's scoffing at the promises of Christ, just using contemporary language. See, the Bible is real relevant to our life today. It just looks old. And so to, to counteract this scoff, this cynicism, Peter gives us two really great reasons for believing that the king will return just like he said he would. Let's go to verses five through seven. For they deliberately overlooked, they deliberately overlooked, they've got selective history. They deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago when the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. Verse 7, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire 
being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter gives us two reasons to believe in what Christ says. Reason one is in verse five. People who think that the Lord does not intervene into time and space are intentionally ignoring something. The Lord has entered into time and space when he created time and space. It's called creation. Oh, and by the way, he continues to actively sustain creation up to this present day. They're overlooking the fact. Peter, in verse 5, he is giving a super compressed account of creation in verse 5. He talks about how God separated the waters below from the waters above. He also made dry ground appear up out of that water. Later on, God used a misting water to sustain the land as well as rivers and springs and creeks as irrigation systems in the earth. And God continues to sustain creation through these same waters as well to this present day. God absolutely interacts with his creation, past and present. This is not a new thing. Reason two he gives that the Lord entered into time and space by judging the world. Peter goes on in verse 6. He says that uh, he reminds God's people about Noah. Remember Noah built the ark? The ark and the flood that his family experienced was a foreshadowing of the final rescue of God's people and the final judgment of those who ignore his rule. Peter is reminding us of something that we forget when we get cynical about God. There was a point in history when the world was so full of wickedness and sin that God had to judge it. He just said, I cannot let this nonsense go on any longer. He held back, he held back, he held back, day after day, month after month, decade after decade until he could no longer ignore all the wickedness that we were doing. And after the flood, the earth was purified of sin and all wickedness for a time. Here's the point. Here's why he's bringing this up. The flood proved that world history has never been on an automated, uninterrupted cycle that just repeats indefinitely. God has always dynamically interacted with his creation and we are moving in a particular direction. It's not cyclical. Here's the point. The Lord cares very much what we do in his creation and to his creation. And he cares in a very hands-on way, not a distant, laissez-faire kind of way. I'll just see what they do. That's his point. Peter takes these scoffers' argument uh, from selective history and he actually uses it against them. It's like a judo move. It's pretty interesting. Basically, it says, look, if history, if the past, if history is a valid predictor of the future, which you claim it is, scoffers, then let's look at history. Then, then we have solid historical reasons to believe in the king's promise that he will return to earth and he'll unjudge the ungodly. And that's great hope for God's people who are mocked by the ungodly. It won't be that way forever. Just like during the days of the flood, the Lord, uses, just, uh, the Lord used the earth as his theater. He used it like his stage upon which to perform judgment against sin and the ungodly. He is also, again, going to use the earth as his stage to act out ju- his judgment against sin and the ungodly in the near future. 
See, the claim that the king will not come into the earth and not judge its inhabitants doesn't hold water. No pun intended. It does not hold any water. That's ignorance parading itself as insightfulness. Listen, guys, we have good reason. You and I have good reason to believe the promise that the king will enter into the world and set everything right. That is not the opiate of the masses. And we should live his way now. We should live as if his eternal kingdom is coming and this way of living is passing away. You know why? Because it is. It's already started with his first advent. Let me put it this way. If you knew Google was going to fail in five years, I know what you're thinking. Google's so big and it's got its fingers in everything we do every day, it'll never fail, right? We kind of we do that search engine with that. It's just, I'm just going to turn my website out and Google search will just be there. It'll never fail, right? But it, let's just say somehow you got some kind of inside tip and you knew that Google, as big as it was, was going to fail in five years. All of its products would be absolutely scrapped and they wouldn't even be able to resell them because they, they're not worth anything anymore. Would you continue to invest your money and your retirement in its stock? No, you wouldn't. The answer is no, you wouldn't. How about this? Would you continue to entrust your most important data to its servers and to its other products day after day if you already had good reason to believe, certainty to know that it would fail in five years? Would you continue to live your life that way? No. No, if you knew Google was going to be bankrupt, all of its products would be worthless in five years, you would begin making different choices with your life today. The future impacts the present, is what I'm saying. You would start migrating your important data somewhere else more reliable, right? You would start migrating and investing your time and money and energy somewhere else that was more durable. You and I have good reason to believe the king is coming to fully bring his kingdom and when that does it will mean that this way of the world that is currently operating will be over why would you want to keep investing your money your time your energy your planning your scheduling into getting ahead according to the world's reckoning to the world's standard and definition of getting ahead and being successful I'm not talking about storing up water and guns and bullets and canned goods and hiding out in a bunker, hiding away from society. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about doing all the normal stuff that we already do, but from a very different value system, in a different way, a value system that's more reliable, more lasting, more durable. Does this make sense? We should value things differently in light of the coming king. We should want to pursue holiness with great energy right now. God calls his people to do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before our God right now. 
Why? Because that's how his people will be walking and living forever and everywhere. This is good news. So we have good reason to believe that the king will return, but what do we do with this little fact that it's been a long time? He seems to be delaying. What do do we do? How do we navigate that? Well, we should interpret the king's delay as patience, not slothfulness. We interpret this delay as patience, not slothfulness. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. For the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. But that all, not, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. If we have good reason to believe the king will return like he promised, what is taking him so long? What in heaven's name is taking him so long? Well, Peter gives two responses to help us understand Christ's apparent slowness, his apparent delay. The first is that the Lord who created time does not work according to time, like we do. He made time, so he doesn't serve it. You and I do, but he doesn't. He's working on a different schedule, so to speak, from our reckoning. What feels like a delay to us is not a delay from his perspective at all. He is always perfectly on time and never been late once. By the way, this is not the first time that Christ has been accused of being late, if you know your history and your Bible. You you remember when Jesus heard that his friend that he loved so much, Lazarus, remember him? He, He heard he was dying. He got news he's dying. He's not that far away. Do you guys remember this? Instead of rushing to his friend's aid immediately as the king, the son of God with all power, he intentionally stays two full days until he dies and then goes and sees his friend that he loves. What kind of a king does that? What kind of a loving God does that? That's what people are wondering. You can read all about that in John chapter 11. So Mary meets Jesus and says, why did you delay? She can't figure that out, kind of like you and I. Why are you delaying? Why are you late in your coming? Your lateness shows that you must not care about us and what's happening here. But Jesus responds by saying, basically, look, I was late late according to your timetable, but not according to my timetable. I chose this time to come so that both my glory and my power would be made unmistakably visible before your very eyes, Mary. That's why I chose this timetable, because that's what I'm trying to do. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead, right? Demonstrating simultaneously his glory and his power right before Mary's eyes. Huh. Jesus really had the right time frame after all, didn't he? He really is glorious and full of power after all. 
See, the cynic wants us to interpret Christ's slowness in returning as lateness, or maybe worse. Maybe it's just a sign that he just doesn't even care what's going on here. He doesn't see, and if he does see, he just doesn't care. He's just going to let this all wind down. Peter tells us to interpret Christ's delay as an act of patience towards sinners because he does not want any to perish at his judgment. You see, brothers and sisters, Jesus came to earth the first time as a little baby to offer salvation to all people. He came in weakness the first time. He came to rescue and not condemn the first time. But he will come back in power the second time. 2 Thessalonians 1, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and grant relief to those who are afflicted as well to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. For they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Jesus will return to earth as the conquering king. He will not return to offer salvation. He's made that offer for centuries upon centuries upon centuries. He will return only to offer righteous judgment. There'll be no more chance for salvation. So the question is, why is he so long in delaying? Our hearts cry out when we see all the injustice around us. God, don't you see it? How long, O Lord, will you make us look at this? Why are you so long in your coming? Because he's being patient towards you, Peter says. Yes, you. Not someone out there somewhere. I want you to let Peter's words land on you as they should. See, as in the days of Noah, he's holding back. He's holding back his justice as long as possible because his desire is for us to repent and to turn to him for forgiveness and salvation and wholeness. Come be a part of my kingdom because this is the way it's going to be everywhere and forever. I want you to join this, so I'm waiting. I'm holding it back. Why is he delaying so long? Why does the king seem happy to ignore so much violence and so much prejudice and lying and adultery and self-centeredness? So that when he comes to render final and irreversible justice to humanity, no one will be able to accuse Jesus of being unfair. That's why he's taking so long. That accusation will not stick to him. No one will be able to accuse the king of being emotionally temperamental. He's just a hothead and acting emotionally. No, he's not. He's being very cool-headed and long-suffering, on contrary. No one will be able to accuse the king of not giving people enough time to repent. Both his glory and his power will be unmistakably made visible before everybody's eyes 
when he judges. that's, That's what verse 10 is talking about, guys. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in them will be burned up. Is that what it says? No. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. See, here's how the ancient world in the time of Peter, they understood the universe, the cosmos. Can we put that slide up? It's kind of like this. The earth is like this pot, all right? This is how how you can visualize it. The earth is like a pot. It sits on water. You got the waters above, the waters below. Genesis, right? So it's like this. The earth is a pot. It kind of sits on this water. And above the earth, there's this dome. It's the sky, and it holds all, all these heavenly bodies that Peter calls them, all right? Holds the sky and the clouds and the stars and the moon. You look up, that's it. That's it. Peter calls them heavenly bodies. And above the sky is the heavens, or the heavens above the heavens, the scripture calls it sometimes. And that's where God lives. So you got God in heaven, you got people on earth, and you got this, this firmament. You got this thing in between God and man. The sky with its heavenly bodies forms something like a lid to the pot. If you can kind of picture this, all right? Where the, the earth is, all the inhabitants are living life on the earth. And Peter's not saying that the Lord's judgment is going to burn all creation into oblivion. God has no beef with mountains. God's got no beef with rivers and trees and tigers and birds because they don't sin against him. God's beef is with sinners on the earth. When Christ returns, his judgment is going to purify the earth from all sin, just like the flood did. The flood didn't remove the earth from existence. It removed the wicked from the earth. So here's the picture Peter is painting. He's using apocalyptic language right now. And this is the picture he's wanting us to see. On judgment day, the Lord will suddenly pull off the lid. The skies, right? The stars, the moon. He's going to pop. He's going to all of a sudden, no warning, it's going to be a day just like this. Just normal day, people going to church, doing their job. He's going to pull that lid off and everyone below the earth will clearly see his glory and his power at the same time. Whoa! There he is. I see him, he sees me. I see him, he sees you. So with this lid between us and God, that barrier's gone now. There's nothing in between. The lids are moved. All of our sinful deeds will be exposed to the light of day, to the light of God, before the face of God. It will be judged fairly. On that day, in other words, Christ will make a mockery out of the mockers. Right? You know what it says in Galatians? God is not mocked. Here's the point. Christ's judgment is an unpredictable certainty. I know, that sounds like an oxymoron, right? That's only because it is an oxymoron. That's why it sounds like it. We do not know when the day of the Lord, judgment day is coming, but we can be certain, despite all appearances, that it's definitely coming. That's what we can know. And when it comes, everyone will be suddenly exposed to the eyes of the king. He is the king. He is the king after all. Everything we've done will be put out into the open. There'll be no more hiding, There'll be no explaining. There will be no spin zone. It'll, it is. It'll be seen. 
And so since that day is certainly coming, what kind of person should you and I be today? That's the question we ought to be asking ourselves. That's the right question to ask. What kind of person should you and I be today? Well, Peter answers that question like this in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, that's the lid, the heavenly bodies, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? If you believe what Christ said, and if you're living by his values right now, when Peter's saying, keep going. Be resolute. We're getting ready to make news year resolution. This is just a fitting time. Be resolute in that. Dig in. Keep going. Don't change. Don't listen to the scoffers who say, Jesus won't judge. Even if they claim to be Christians, don't listen to it. Keep making decisions in light of the coming kingdom like you're doing. Keep speaking to your friends and your family about their need for Jesus and his forgiveness and how sweet he is. Keep putting your time and your money and your energy towards justice and mercy and beauty and the spreading of the gospel and glorifying God in your body that he gave you. But if you see that you've started to listen to the message of the scoffer, if you look and your life reflects a cynicism, I just don't believe that. A cynicism towards Jesus right now. He won't judge me. He doesn't see my sin. If he does, he doesn't really care. In fact, he's never coming back. This has always been the same. What difference does any of this make? You start, maybe you're perceiving some of that cynicism in your own soul right now, then you should repent. And you should see that Christ is being patient towards you. It's actually a sign that he loves you, my friend. He does not want judgment for you, but rather life and restoration. You need to see his slowness in returning as an act of love and patience towards you. But you also need to know that this patience does have an end date. It is not indefinite. It's not forever. Christ's judgment is a certainty, but it does not have to be a reality for you. This is the good news. Confess your lack of faith and your love of self. And place your trust in Jesus Christ as your king. May we all adjust our life this year according to Christ's promise and his grace towards us. Amen. And very amen. Let's pray. Dear King, we love you. We thank you for your promises. You give both warnings and promises for one reason. It's because you love us. It's because you love us. Would you help us see how great the extent of your love is towards us? Change our way of doing life through your word, by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.